The following is a message from Reverend Ken Belden of Wellsprings Congregation. So today I'm continuing the message series saying grace. Now as I prepared this week, it's a really influential book that you, know, you may or may not have heard of that kept coming to mind in thinking about grace, especially where grace arrives in our lives from. It's a book that combines Buddhist thought with some of the tenets of psychotherapy. It's called Thoughts Without a Thinker. And it was really influential to people beyond just Buddhists and psychotherapists. So I'm really neither, although I draw strength from both. The idea of the book was that many of the problems, many of the neuroses, many of the sources of mental illness, especially in the Western world, come from this idea because we believe the self, ourselves, is a fixed entity, done and finished and supposedly stable from minute to minute. And what Dr. Epstein, the author of the book, was talking about is that if we could perhaps learn in the West some of the teachings of the East in Buddhism, we would become less attached. We would become less attached to the idea that the self should resist changing from minutes to minutes over time and throughout a whole lifetime. So it's thoughts without a thinker. Great title. And while I was preparing this message, this idea kept coming to me. Grace without a giver. Now like in Amazing Grace, like in the drama this morning, I am one who absolutely and I mean this in all seriousness, absolutely has had my life turned around by the experience of grace, transformed into a deeper channel for love and understanding and wisdom, at least I hope so. I've experienced that awe-inspiring love that really does turn lives around. These aren't kind of kinds of things of like, you know, seas parting and the skies opening up and the hand of God reaching down, that kind of spectacle, biblical spectacle of understanding what grace might be like. It's more like a little tap on the shoulder. There? What? And wake up. That's the experience of grace that I've had throughout my life at many different times. But that experience of grace also brings up the question who's the giver? What's the source? Did God send grace to me? Kind of like an old-fashioned engineer sitting at an electrical panel and opening up this source and this switch so that the channel of grace energy runs my way. That's the question that I was really struggling with this week. And it really came home to me a number of years ago when I was involved in a near, what could have been near-fatal car accident with a child. See, I was going about my business, this is when I lived in South Florida, driving within the speed limit, I knew it, I was sure of it, driving within the speed limit, 35 miles an hour, headed west, and I think it was Sheridan Street or Sheridan Boulevard in Broward County, and the light was green, clear green, and I could see as I started to get through the intersection that there were a group of kids on the far side from me who all had stopped their bikes, knowing that they were not supposed to cross with the green traffic they were going to go right into, except one of them didn't. And you talk about, you know, a minute seeming condensed like, like your whole lifetime there. Because I could see it. I could see that I was going to hit this child on a bike. And there was nothing I could do about it. I screeched on my brakes. I smelled that burning rubber. And I heard it. Wham! That's where my heart stopped. I got out. And I saw that, in fact, I had stopped in time. And all that had happened was a small dented tire and a dent on the side of my car. And the kid, a 12-year-old girl, of 
course, not wanting to acknowledge that she did anything wrong, said, no, 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 I'm fine, I'm fine, and people would stop all over the intersection. And she was really okay. I was shaking so bad I thought I was going to throw up. But of course I had that thought. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Grace? Sure felt like it. Then the next morning I took a look on the lead section of the local paper. And I saw that just about ten miles from where our near accident happened, Ten miles away, a child had been crossing the street in southwest Miami-Dade County. It got hit by a car, and it died. Stakes are high when we talk about grace. Somehow, was I more blessed that day, and the child more blessed that day? Whereas, by implication, the other driver and the other child were not as blessed, were not as graced, were not worthy somehow? That kind of understanding of God as sort of divine caretaker giver of favors. That's an image that's really troubling. See, it's not just unsatisfactory intellectually for me to understand God in that way, but it's pretty abhorrent to my sense of ethics as well, too. That somehow this child or I should have been spared, whereas did they not have faith? Were they from the wrong religious tradition? Was God just sort of busy doing other things that day? If we use these kinds of images of God, we see the ethical implications. And that God, I think, becomes, unfortunately, more tyrant than benefactor. But this thought is not a new one. Why do some survive, some experience grace, and some do not? It is a question thousands, thousands of years old, and wonderfully, wonderfully, I'm in good company when I'm starting to think about these things. There's a guy named Marcus Borg who is really a radical Christian thinker. He's trying to reinvent Christian spirituality from the inside, saying that too many of those old concepts of the divine or old concepts of sin are really doing damage to humanity. And so Marcus Borg wants to say in a great little book, it's called this, Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time. Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time. That there are in fact many different ways and three ones in particular to understand the divine. The first is theism. You can also understand that as supernaturalism. It's the idea that I did not hit that kid, because God on that day was looking out for me and looking out for her and flipped the switch. And grace was offered. Some thinkers like John Spong, the radical former Episcopal bishop of Newark, New Jersey, said this kind of God is like Santa Claus God. Rescues us. Gives us what we want if we're just good enough little boys and girls. We will get the gift on Christmas. And we won't get the lump of coal. This kind of God, he says, and I agree with him, is the best argument for atheism that there is. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. But fortunately, that doesn't exhaust. That doesn't exhaust what the divine can mean. Borg then says there's a second choice. Pantheism. Pantheism says very simply, God is everything. And everything is God. Now, I think that makes it a little bit more tangible. Lest the God beyond controlling all of history like a puppeteer, or the God within and between. The reason I find this understanding of the divine unsatisfactory is that it says God is the tree, period. God is you, period. God is you, period. God is you, period. God is you, period. Now part of this sounds really good, that we all have the aspect of the divine within us. But it doesn't leave any room for mystery. If you're being a real ass, is that God? <laughs> Could be. 
this idea of pantheism, God is everything, doesn't leave enough room. It doesn't leave enough room for mystery. And so Borg comes up with a third word that really describes my own position more than anything else. He calls it panentheism. Panentheism. Everything is in God and an aspect of divinity is in everything. This is sometimes called process thought, process theology. It's very academic. I'm not going to bring it up too much. But the idea is that the divine is in the relationship between things. It's not out and above, supernatural and beyond. It's in and it's also between and it also is very mysterious. This is the experience, the experience of what many of us come to when we know grace. It is an opening for that truly unknown and finally indefinable quality of each of our lives. It's also to say that when we experience transcendence, awe, wonder, love, that sense of love that surpasses all understanding, these are the traditional things that often people say when they say God. It also marks that sense of what true spirituality is all about. Spirituality, which is that inner experience of peaceful strength connected to some external source of belonging. The inner experience of peaceful strength connected to an external source of belonging. Buckminster Fuller, the architect, put it this way. God is not a noun. God is not a noun, not a thing. Proper or improper. God is a verb. God is the articulation and not the art. God is the ordering of the vast harmoniousness of the universe from the unleashed energy of chaos. God is not a noun, not a thing, not a man, not a woman, not a person, not a being, like we are beings, but the relationship and the connection between all beings. It's this kind of understanding of God that when Carl Jung said, I don't believe, I know. I felt this experience. What does grace look like then in a panentheistic understanding of what divinity is? I think it looks a lot like what Reverend Susan Snyder described from the movie Patch Adams. Remember that? Robin Williams a few years ago. It's the story of a very unorthodox doctor who barely makes it through medical school because he completely annoys all of the administrators, the people who are grading him. Now, at one point, he sort of gets a very reticent woman, a woman who he's clearly in love with, to open up to him. And she reveals that many years ago she had been sexually abused. And as a result, understandably, keeps very strong boundaries, doesn't let a lot of people in. And she opens up to Patch and she sort of really adopts this understanding of medicine and the practice of what he called Gesundheit as medicine. Joyful, unorthodox, fun, holy. She really adopts it. And so she starts to reach out to some troubled people. And in fact, in the movie, what happens is she is murdered by one of these deranged patients who she goes to see. And Patch Adams, Robin Williams, absolutely thinks that he is responsible. He thinks that he is responsible, and so he takes himself, literally, it's like almost sort of a biblical scene, he takes himself up to a cliff, up to a cliff in the middle of nature, and he threatens to jump off. He said, if this is the kind of God you are, then I don't want any more of you. I don't want any more of you. It's that moment where he's wrestling so mightily and he said, if this is what you are, you are a monster and I will not take it anymore. Until finally, at the end, he says, I'm not going to jump. But it's not because that theistic understanding of God comes down and moves his feet back physically almost against his own will. He says, forget it. You're not worth it. And then the next moment, he turns around and he sees on his medical bag a beautiful butterfly. And the butterfly leaves the bag and lands on his shoulder. 
and lands on his arm. And then circles and lights all around him. That's an experience of grace that is panentheistic. Not theistic. It is small. It is beautiful. But at the same time, it makes all the difference to Patch Adams in the movies. It's this idea that the profound experience of grace is the knowing, the knowing that we are connected. That nothing can sever that connection. It's kind of like the fallen preacher in Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath says, you know, a fellow ain't got one soul of his own. It's just one small piece of one big soul. One big soul that belongs to everyone and belongs to all of us. Actually sounds like our great sage Emerson when he was preaching about the oversoul. That oversoul that connects all life, each to the other, and lets us know truly we don't walk through this life alone. Everyone belongs to it, but no one owns it. That's the problem with the theistic understanding of God that I've always had is that if you just curry the right favor, if you just pray the right words, if you just go to the right church, if you just know the right pastor, if you just read the right scripture, that somehow you'll get the main line, you'll tap that divine main vein, and you'll be in, as opposed to being out. That understanding of the divine is just sort of a game of, well, my God is bigger than your God. And that is so unsatisfactory, especially to those of us who are here as universalists, knowing that it belongs to all of us or it belongs to none of us. All or none. None of us can own, but all of us can share. And this is the same thing with grace, because grace by definition, think of the word, you've offered someone a grace. By definition, grace cannot be earned. Grace cannot be earned. Now, it's tough for many of us to hear. Those of us who are hard workers and strivers and people who like to accomplish things and get things done. But grace, by definition, can't be earned. It is freely given with no strings attached beyond just our own strivings. The good news is at least we can prepare ourselves for it. We can prepare ourselves for this receipt of grace. Even if we can't earn it, we can put ourselves in the relationship to things of worth. When we do the work of recognizing what matters most. It's kind of like what Nietzsche said in a negative way. He said, when you stare into the abyss, at the same time, the abyss is staring back into you. Sort of a scary thing. But in a positive way, it's the same thing with things of worth. When we stare and connect into those things of worth, they do work upon us as well, too. Now, one of the ways to do this, might seem a little bit counterintuitive, is to listen to those moments of upset. I call them 3 a.m. in the morning moments. I've known more than enough of them in my life, those moments when sleep will not come and you've got that troubled conscience. And maybe you're hoping that something will come to you, grab you, or tap you on the shoulder, and perhaps let you know that things are going to be okay. Wendell Berry, the great gentleman, farmer, scholar, religious thinker. It's a poem called The Peace of Wild Things. It's about one of these 3 a.m. moments. When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in the fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and I lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their own lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting for me with their lights. For a time I rest 
in the grace of the world, and I am free. That poem comes from listening. Listening even through heartache and hardship. I mean, just imagine if the poem started like this. When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night, the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I take an Ambien and I go back to bed. <laughs> now, I agree with what the Dalai Lama said. He said, sleeping meditation is the most important form of meditation. And as someone who's not been the greatest sleeper his entire life, I really know that. But still... It's important to listen to those 3 a.m. moments, to not push them down, deny they exist, pop the pills, distract ourselves, watch TV, do whatever it is that we might forget ourselves. Because really what we're doing is we're not putting ourselves then in relationship to the thing that maybe is the itch that really needs to be scratched. Maybe even in those moments when grace is trying to sort of pound us on the head with a little bit of heartache, we need to listen still, even if it is difficult. Now, we also know grace, obviously, not just in the experience of triumph over adversity, but it comes in the disciplining of ourselves to keep ourselves open to joy and to the indefinite nature of our lives. Just like that Thoughts Without a Thinker book. You're not done yet. Say that with me. Say it personally. I'm not done yet. Do you believe that? Good. Some of you looked unsure. Well, that's why you're here. Things are indeterminate. The end of the story hasn't been written yet. It's kind of like what Jesus said. My favorite quotes of his. Unless you become like little children, you will not experience the realm of heaven. Unless you become as these little ones, he points to them literally in the gospel story, you will not experience the realm of heaven. Now when I first read this years ago, I thought, typical Christianity. They want to keep me immature. I was reactive. I was young. I was stupid. Really, what Jesus is saying there is open yourself to the indeterminacy of your life. Open yourself to awe. Open yourself to wonder. Open yourself to love. All those kinds of things that we associate with the childlike nature of life and all those kinds of things that we want to feed in our kids. But frankly, if we're not feeding them ourselves, we can't feed them in our kids. A number of years ago, this really, really made a difference. This idea of being a literal child of God. It was in the year when my divorce happened, when my marriage broke down. And instead of even at the ripe old age of 32, 33, feeling really green, really naive, well, which I was, really what I felt was old. Not old as wise, but old and used up. Old kind of like exhaust fumes. Feel dirty. Feel used up. All done. Kaput. Just pollute someone else's air. But every day... I started my meditation or my prayer with this image. Today I will be a child of God. Today I will be a child of God. Today I will be a child of God. Not just convincing myself, but really trying to settle into what that idea would mean for me. And I've got to tell you, in this year, when I felt so old and exhausted, it really did have effects. It really did start to change. I started running, seriously, and I'm a slow, slow runner still, but I was even slower back then. I was only a couple years past being a -a pack-a-day smoker at that point as well, too. But I got out to the road, and I wasn't going to win any races, especially where I lived in South Florida at that time. All these beautiful hard bodies running past me, gliding on the air, seemingly to fly by. I mean, you know, trying to make it down along the beach, you know, sometimes putting myself in a sweatshirt because, you know, that way I could sweat more and lose more weight while I was doing it, you know? But the point is, I got out there. 
I literally reached back into my closet for one of my childhood things and picked out that old guitar that Franklin guys will never sit in with you. Because, well, it wasn't that good anyway, but also I broke this tendon in a game of flag football when I was 15. And it just won't, it's completely deformed, it's really not an attractive thing. It won't lay flat. I really got to bend it. It takes a lot of energy for me to try and play guitar. But I took that old guitar, no longer strung, restrung it, took it out of the back of my closet, went to that website, or there's quite a number of websites that have the chord changes to George Jones's She Thinks I Still Care. I was going through a divorce. And I learned how to play it. I learned how to play it. Just those four walls that surrounded my life at this point. No one was ever going to hear it. I didn't want anyone to hear it. That's not the point. That's what this experience of childlikeness of being a child of the universe, of being a child of God, can feel like. We open ourselves to grace. We open ourselves to the experience that we are not done yet. And because we are not done yet, we get past that very adult mind that wants to say, edit. That wants to say, you know what you are, be only that. Child of Godness. It's a different way to understand how we can experience the grace in this life. We heard in the drama this morning, you turned my life around. Through those small actions that Grace took for her neighbor Ellen, turned her life around. And you know that's what the word conversion means? It has nothing to do with going to this church or going to that synagogue or going to that community or leaving a community. Conversion means turning. Turning towards the light, turning towards love, turning towards grace. That's is the real meaning of what it means to be converted. Grace can have all these kinds of effects, and I know many of you have experienced grace's power within your life. It can turn a life around, and in fact can sustain a life all throughout its journey. One of my favorite stories about grace comes from Fred Craddock, who taught preaching for many, many years. He taught in Georgia, and he taught in Texas, and he taught in Oklahoma, and he's one of the giants. When you first go to seminary and you take Preaching 101, you read Preaching by Fred Craddock. Kathy is nodding, yes, you know. We all read Fred Craddock, and he tells this great story about once when he was traveling with his, with his wife, and they were in some place suitably southern in Tennessee, like the Pig and Whistle or something like that. And they were just trying to have a nice, quiet meal while they're seated in this sort of roadside restaurant. They could see this guy make his way from table to table to table all throughout the restaurant. He was one of these sort of silver-haired foxes kind of guy. He was meeting everyone, glad-handing them, you know, talking to them, trying to make connections, and Fred and his wife were like, don't come over here. We just want to be left alone. We want to have a nice, quiet meal. But eventually, this charming older man made himself over and introduced himself. And Fred said, I'm going to make this brief. Introduced himself. Didn't say his name, but just said, hey guys, how you doing? And he said, what do you do for a living, the old man said. He said, I'm a preacher. I teach homiletics. Ah, homiletics. You teach other preachers how to preach. And with that, he pulled up a chair and sat down. <laughs> he said, ah, I have a story about preachers for you. I was born not far from here, on the other side of these mountains here in Tennessee. And where I grew up, it was a small town over 50 years ago. And I was... What everyone told me, I was a bastard. I never knew my dad. I didn't know my dad. Now this is a difficult thing for anyone, the old man said, but especially 50 years ago, 
in this small town, in this part of Tennessee, people got into your business. Everywhere I went, I was a child without a father. I was a child who didn't know his father. I was a child who was alone. The worst times, you know, at least in school, I could try and you know, focus on my studies, or at least in recess, I could go off by myself. But the worst was going into town on Saturdays when I had to do the shopping. I felt like all the eyes were on me in this little town wondering, who's his dad? Who's his father? This child doesn't have one. Life was not easy for me growing up. He said, though, there was one place where I often felt comfortable. There was this young preacher who came to town when I was about 10, 11 or so. And I really liked what he said. I went there and he made me feel good about myself. One of the few places where I actually felt I could go and get some strength. But what I would do is I would come in after the music and I'd sit in the back and I'd hear the preacher preach and I'd walk right out. Every single time. But still it's a place where I got strength every single week. But one week, the problem was this. They let out while I wasn't paying attention. And I turned around to go and I was trapped. I was going to be seen, and I never wanted to be seen. I wanted to be invisible. And so as I was trying to make my way around the side, I was trying to make my way out, I was just about there at the door, and I felt this hand come right down on my shoulder. I turned around, and who do you know who it was? It was the preacher. He said, Whose boy are you? Whose boy are you? I thought another place. Another place where I can't go and be safe. Another place where I can't go and be myself or even invisible. Another place where I'll go and be the bastard once again. I turned around to face the preacher. He said, whose boy are you? And he took his hand off of my shoulder. And he said, I see it now. I see the family resemblance. You are a child of God. And he stood back and looked at me again. You are a child of God. Now go and claim your inheritance. And the old man was quiet at the table, his head down, almost as if he was in prayer. And Fred, Mr. and Mrs. Craddock, Craddock were saying, why did he stop by? They were just stunned to hear the story. And the silver-haired fox put back on his glad-handing face. He said, thanks for letting me spend some time with you. That's my story about preachers. And Fred Craddock said, almost as the guy was leaving, I'm sorry, I didn't get your name. My name is Ben Humber. It's been really nice to meet you. And Fred Craddock turned to his wife and said, my dad told me a story a number of years ago that the people of Tennessee twice elected a man to be their governor, a man who didn't know his father, named Ben Hoover. Who are you? Who are we? Say that we are all children of grace, children of God, or if you prefer, children of unnameable source. Children, all of us, I hope, still open to wonder and meaning and awe and love. The kind of love that you feel and you can say, I don't deserve this, but it's part of my life anyway. Who are we and who are we?
here, Wellsprings. Here I hope to experience some of that grace, some of that connectedness that is part of each and all of our lives. If, if you will open yourself to it. Amen. May you live in blessing. Thanks for listening to this message from Wellsprings Congregation. If you'd like to find out more about us, you can reach us at wellspringsuu.org.